How's it going? Going great. How about with you guys? We are awesome. We are awesome. Excellent. Where are you all based? I'm in Sherman Oaks in California. Um, Are you in LA? I'm in um, Charlottesville, Virginia. Oh. And then Lou, where are you from? Uh, I'm from London, but I'm in LA. So like 15 minutes away from Noah. Oh, good. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm right in the middle here. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm originally from Nashville, but I've been here since I was five. Uh-huh. So, hey, Well, yeah. I hope you're uh, staying safe out there with all the fires and all. It's definitely the, the air is really bad out here. You know, um, it's like definitely harder to, I don't know for you, Lou, but like for me, it's definitely like I've been having like a little bit of trouble breathing and my nose is like really like messed up just like from how, how bad the air quality is. But like, I mean, it definitely could be much worse for us. We're not in, you know, any of the spots that have been hit by the fires and we're, we're very lucky. So yeah. um, the smoke like- is so thick. We, we've got it here in Virginia, all the way from the West coast. I know. I read about that. It's crazy. Yeah, it's amazing. I feel like today's the first day where it's, I could see the sun. Well, thank goodness. But, I mean, I, I've been running yeah. four miles every day anyway, and I'm, uh, I'm listening to this audiobook about the power of breathing th- through your nose, mm-hmm. um, and it's like game-changing. Yeah, I actually, I actually can't breathe through my nose right now. It's really crazy. And I was telling my mom, like, I, I, is this going to be permanent? <laughs> I was freaking out earlier. <laughs> I can't breathe through my nose unless I flare my nostrils. And she was like, yeah, you just like, my nose has just been fucked up since the fires, but. Uh, oh no. Well, hopefully it'll get under control I know. I get early in the season. I know. I just, you know, honestly, it's just, it's wild how much climate change is affecting our planet. Um, it is. And, you know, there's so many ways that, we could at least try and help stop it. And, uh, well, we have to, and we have to fact, a lot of what we talk about in our work is, uh, you know, this awakening to consciousness and, uh, that every bit involves climate change and our taking responsibility for it. So Mm -hmm. uh, from my point of view, it's inevitable and we have no choice. We absolutely have to take this very seriously, uh, because you know, the world is on fire. And it's getting flooded and super storms and everything. So it's high time we started yes, to do the right thing about the climate. And, you know, with the, with the weather, too, the more people believe it, the more it's going to happen or know it's going to happen, you know, yeah. manifestation. Well, yeah, it's, it's absolutely, uh, you know, climate is a changing and has a lot to do with human activity. So it's time for us to step up to the plate. Amazing. Um, okay, so we officially start? You, everyone- yeah. Okay, perfect. Um, I want to welcome Dr. Eben Alexander um, to the In My Fields podcast, uh, an incredible, I mean, neurosurgeon, uh, author, some great books, you know, Proof of Heaven, Map of Heaven, Living in a Mindful Universe, um, you know, had an, a near-death experience. Um, and, you know, how we start the show is uh, thoughts, feelings, emotions on the inside create your, out, create your outside exterior. So my mm-hmm. question to you, uh, doctor, would be how are you feeling right now? 
Well, I would say I'm, I'm feeling great. Uh, but a lot of that has to do with uh, realizing that, uh, you know, we've got to all take responsibility for this world and where it's headed. And a lot of that external world in many ways is d derived from our internal world. And that's why it's so important that our beliefs and our emotions and our uh, kind of feelings and our choices and attitudes about uh, everything going on in our lives, and that includes this planet at large, uh, need to align. And uh, I think there's been a lot of polarization uh, in this world in the last few years, and it's uh, it can be very damaging. But we're all we can all get on the same page about some of these uh, challenges, and that's where I think we can grow together and make a better world for for it all. Amazing. How, how are you feeling, Noah? Yeah, I'm good. I, uh, I've been riding horses every day, which has made me so happy. And like, uh, honestly, like, so like back to like normal Noah for a second, uh, which I feel like I haven't had like a long period of time of just like normal Noah before or like for, for years since I've started like music really. And so, uh, it's nice. Like I'm, this is like the first time I think in quarantine where I, cause you know, we're still like in our house, you and me like locked in where I feel like a lot of people aren't doing that right now. And it's like freaking me out. Uh, but I don't know. Yeah. It's been really nice. Like being able to like have that time and, um, kind of just focus on like getting back to me and and who I am and and being comfortable with me and um I feel like through this whole time that we've been locked in our house since March a lot of people have been kind of been forced to like meet who they are or like a, 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 I don't know grow as who they are and um that's what I'm just I'm trying to do because you know I've been going through it for a little bit in the past couple weeks and so I've had a lot of change in the past month, two months, you know, so just going through that and, um, you know, dealing with everything. How are you, Lou? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm good. I'm really good. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm on a flow, should I say, a creative flow, a business flow, uh, a mental flow, an awareness flow. Um, I'm really starting to kind of find myself. Um, you know, we, we have a 10 month old, so. Uh, really? Kind of really yes, we do. All, all three of us. Yeah, yeah. That, that is exciting. Thank yeah, I'm. So every time fun. he mentions Freya, I have to mention that I'm, I'm God, mommy. <laughs> oh, that's great. Oh, that's yeah. so wonderful to hear. Um, so it's just kind of you know, kind of raising her in this environment while you know still making her you know taking her to the playground and having her socialize and all these type of things. But I realized, um, I went to lunch with, with my wife the other day. Um, and I sat there and it felt so strange. Like it felt so odd. And I realized like I'm slowly becoming a social recluse, but don't get me wrong, more sociable because I mean, we're doing things like this. So I, I'm more sociable, but more, I should say less personable, uh, in terms of sociable. Um, and it felt, I mean, uh, yeah, if I was a recluse before this, I'm, I'm a hermit now. That's for sure. Well, it's certainly in this in this era of kind of physical social distancing, it is important to maintain our connections with people. So thank God for, you know, technology and being able to call people up and Zoom and all of that, because uh, 
that's a, a very essential to everything we do. You know, we're we're basically part of part of this uh, beautiful network of of souls, and uh, just because we have to be physically distant uh, for COVID doesn't mean we can't stay in touch and communicate and do this kind of thing. You know, get messages out to the world that uh, help to strengthen people. Love that. Um, I, I, so I, yeah, I want to dive in on uh, just just kind of your background first. So obviously the, the neurosurgeon, um, the kind of pre-NDE. Um, I just want to talk a little bit about your background, your kind of, uh, you know, what you studied in, what you trained in, because then it kind of sets the precedent of, of you know, your whole experience and, and all this type of stuff spiritually too. Right. Yeah, well, I'd say important to point out, I think my father had a tremendous influence on my life. He had been a, a combat surgeon in the Second World War. Uh, he came back and headed up a uh, neurosurgical training program, so he was very scientific. He was fascinated by cosmology and physics, uh, neuroscience, uh, but he also had a strong religious belief. He had grown up in eastern Tennessee in Knoxville, uh, and his own father, who had been a general surgeon, um, had taken him to the Presbyterian Church every Sunday of his life. So my dad was very comfortable with science and with you know, spirituality with a kind of a religious belief and a loving personal God and the power of prayer. In fact, he would say that that was an essential part of his work as a physician, as a healer. But I grew up in the 60s and 70s, and like many of that uh, era, uh, I always knew that science is absolutely the pathway to truth. Um, yes, I'd gone to that Methodist church in North Carolina growing up and wanted to believe all that I'd heard, but in all those many years of practicing neurosurgery, including 15 years at Harvard Medical School, where I uh, taught as an associate professor, um, I was very kind of mystified by how uh, conscious awareness could survive the death of the brain and body. I really just had no idea how that could work. Uh, and then uh, if people who've read Proof of Heaven will realize uh, that in February of 2000, I actually had a very dark night of the soul uh, had to do with the fact that I was adopted. And that, of course, that's a big part of my backstory is my adoption. I was put up for adoption when I was 11 days old, uh, adopted into a wonderful, loving family. They honored all my hopes and dreams. But like so many adoptees, I wondered, well, is my birth mother still out there somewhere? And I would write letters to the children's home and always get the same answer. She's not looking for you. Forget about it. So I was okay with that. I mean, my life was going well. But and in February 2000, my oldest son, who was in sixth grade in uh, school, had a, fam a project on family genealogy. And he said, Dad, we have to know more about your birth family. So I wrote another letter to the children's home. And that's where I actually, and this is all there in, uh, in the book, Proof of Heaven, but that's where I got that uh, perceived rejection because uh, driving down a, a highway in a blizzard, taking my son to go skiing, Back in February 2000, I remembered, oh, yeah, the social worker said she might have some answers today. So I called her up. And she said, well, I did find something out. Are you sitting down? Well, I was driving through a blizzard, but that was sitting down. And she said, well, your birth parents got married. Uh, I cannot tell you what a shocker that was. I'd never in all of my 50-some uh, years at that point uh, entertained that my birth parents were actually together. And she said, and they had three children but your youngest sister died two years ago. That would have been 1998 that she passed over. Uh, and they're still grieving her loss, so it's not a good time to come back in their lives. And that sent me into a dark night of the soul. I didn't realize it at the time, but over months, uh, I stopped taking my sons to church. I stopped saying prayers with them at night. 
Uh, and I really, uh, in many ways, just gave up on a loving personal God and power of prayer and all of that. I became very agnostic. And that was the situation for eight years going right up into my coma. Uh, but it turns out that a year before my coma, um, walking on a beach in South Carolina, two of my sisters said, don't you think it's time you reached out to your birth family again? And of course, my first response was no, because I remembered how it kind of kicked me over the edge of the cliff. Uh, but they were right. So I wrote a letter, and this time I got a positive response. So October 5th of 2007, uh, I walked down a sidewalk in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and for the first time in 54 years, I hugged my birth mother. And then minutes later, I hugged my birth father, and that reunion was was absolutely astonishing, one of the most uh, beautiful moments of my life. And that was one year before my coma. Uh, and that reunion kind of started me on the right direction. But of course, those who've read Proof of Heaven will realize that story goes much deeper. Uh, that reunion was essential for in many ways. And then, uh, you know, in November 2008, that's when I suddenly went deep into coma for a week. And that is kind of the basis of my near-death experience. And the 12 years since then, uh, have all been a process of uh, basically assimilating and understanding what happened to me uh, as a scientist, because as I said, science is the pathway to truth. Uh, and I made the mistake, like so many people, of thinking that reductive materialism is science. I mean, that actually uh, is an outmoded version of science that should have died 80 years ago, the advent of quantum physics. And yet, uh, today, the you know Scientific American, New York Times Science section, they are still completely sucker punched by scientific materialism, thinking that is the be all and end all. And yet, uh, the world is moving rapidly beyond all that. And I found that my near death experience has been greatly embraced by many in the scientific and medical community. Uh, and I work with many of those people uh, on a regular basis in terms of unraveling this profound mystery of what we call consciousness, you know, the relationship of brain and mind. Uh, and it's really become the, the mission of my life is to come to a deeper understanding of that. All challenged because my NDE should not have been able to happen given the documented damage to my neocortex and to my brain from the severe uh, bacterial meningoencephalitis. None of it could have happened and yet it all did happen. And then on top of that, you have this recovery that really has no explanation in Western medicine. And that's why I think it's important that there's a medical case report reviewing my medical records. It was written by three physicians who were not involved in my care, but were fascinated by my uh, complete recovery, which is completely unexpected based on the medical literature and our understanding of, of bacterial meningoencephalitis, because all the evidence is there that I shouldn't have had any experience at all. And not only that, by all rights, uh, by the end of that week in coma, I was down to a 2% chance of survival with no chance of recovery. So how did it all happen? And that mystery is what drives my current efforts. Amazing. Wow. I mean, I want, I want to bring it back to the kind of just before the illness. How were you feeling at the time? How were, you, how were your emotions? How were your thoughts? Um, and... and 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 so you're, you 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 were in contact with your birth parents before coma, correct? It was a, basically a year before coma, in October of uh, 2007. That's when I first met them and met my whole extended birth family over the next few months. Uh, and of course, a lot of that backstory is there in the book Proof of Heaven too, because it's an important part of 
of the coma journey. I mean, really, I think uh, any kind of essential understanding of my coma absolutely demanded that reunion with my birth family. Yeah. But getting back to your question, uh, you know, how, how was I feeling right before it all happened? It was, it was the calm before the storm. I, I felt like everything was going swimmingly well. Now, it turns out that, that my uh, former spouse and uh, my uh, younger son, who was living at home at the time, we'd all been kind of trading a little virus or they had been trading a virus back and forth that week with, you know, some cold symptoms and all that. And, um, I just thought, well, maybe, you know, I'm going to dodge this thing. I'm not going to get it. Uh, and I'd had a little bit of, of maybe some cold symptoms the night before, but wow. when that thing hit me, it hit like a, like a Mack truck, you know, four 30 in the morning, waking up with horrific back pain barely able to make it down the hallway into a hot bath thinking that might alleviate some of my symptoms. And in fact, I almost couldn't even get out of the tub. And then when I finally did just baby steps back to the bed where I just collapsed writhing in, in agony in this cold sweat and just in horrific pain. Soon my youngest son Bond came in the room and started rubbing my temples. And when he did, I felt like I had the worst headache I'd ever had in my life. And of course, anybody who hears of symptoms of severe sudden back pain and headache is going to be, if they have a medical education at all, they're going to be thinking meningitis. But the doctor was already out. My brain was already being overrun by a severe, uh, aggressive, and absolutely should have killed me bacterial meningoencephalitis that afflicted all eight lobes of my brain. And uh, the scan showing basically swelling all the way down to the deepest levels of the neocortex. That's why when these physicians did the case report uh, that came out in September 2018 in uh, Journal of Nervous and Mental Diseases, uh, they had a lot of explaining to do because uh, I should have had no experience at all and certainly not have, have recovered from it all. But they, they explain a lot of that. In fact, the peer reviewers, uh, the medical scientists who were demanding you know, deeper explanation for this case before they published it, they asked them, how do you think this happened? How did this recovery occur? It completely defies everything we, we know about this kind of disease that you could have a total recovery, uh, you know, two months later, uh, go figure. And, and so the explanation from the physicians who wrote the case report is they knew enough uh, from other, hearing other near-death experiences where people had had apparently miraculous healing that they said that's why he recovered was because of the NDE. And that's what actually got it published in the peer-reviewed scientific medical literature was that they had an explanation. Amazing. And I think that's really the important thing to all of us because, you know, medicine has acknowledged for six decades now the importance of placebo effect, the power of our beliefs in healing. Uh, and this, you know, these cases of miraculous healing after a near-death experience of diseases that should have killed people um, is a big lesson about our power to heal. So as a physician, yes, I'm fascinated by uh, kind of the, the deeper lessons that come out of these kind of stories because it, it really just kind of reiterates how important our attitudes and our beliefs are and uh, that prayer has power and uh, uh, that we all have this, uh, this influence on our healing. Oh. So important lesson some... for all. Uh, so, so, you know, obviously the, the, the belief, because I, I believe in the power of healing too. We, we can all heal ourselves. Um, but then for you to believe that you have to believe in the attraction to the illness itself first. Um, I want to get your opinion because I, I mean, spiritually speaking, um, 
where do you think the the attraction to the the you know the the E. coli, the, the spinal uh, meningitis, came because. I always try and run case studies of when I'm feeling down or when I'm feeling a little sniffly or sick. And, and I can usually pinpoint it to a collection of emotions or something that's kind of blocking me or, and I try and kind of rest my mind and, and, and fo- focus on the actual healing aspect, not the actual illness itself. Right. So you being a, a scientist as well as someone who's come out the other end as, as someone who's kind of uh, the awareness of it and the spiritualism of it. I just wanted to touch up on that and just get your opinion on, on the initial attraction. Well, you know, for a long time, I would have had great trouble answering that question. I know uh, people used to ask me when I would first give presentations about my illness and my NDE and my recovery from it. They'd say, so this infinitely loving God that you claim to have met, uh, that God gave you this illness? I said, no, I basically volunteered for it. I mean, in looking back on my life, you know, these hardships, when we go through them, they never are anything that we would think we would have set up in advance. And yet what I've come to realize is that the hardships in life in so many ways are the gifts. They are what allow our souls to grow in a certain direction. And uh, certainly the E. coli meningitis, there's, you know, my doctors have worked hard with consultants all up and down the East Coast trying to understand my illness and how it happened, where it came from. And we really never came up with anything that I would call a satisfactory answer. It was very strange that it was E. coli, because if you do a medical literature search, you'll find that E. coli meningitis almost always occurs in newborns. It's very rare beyond the age of three months. And yet I was a 54-year-old, you know, previously healthy physician coming down with this uh, deadly illness. Uh, And in, in retrospect, I think it was... Uh, kind of like uh, the universe's uh, little wink and nudge and, and kind of sense of humor that I had uh, an illness that normally is very deadly in, in uh, newborns. And in many ways, I came back to this world, a newborn. Uh, you know, my memories were deleted on the journey. That's one of the things that's very atypical of my near-death experience. Uh, whereas if you, uh, for example, look at the Grayson scale, you know, a 32 a maximum 32 uh, score for the the most of anything you can have in an NDE. Uh, My NDE was up around a 28 or 29. Anything above seven is considered a a near-death experience with spiritual qualities. So it was a very profound NDE, and yet the only reason I really lost points from a perfect score had to do with the fact that I was amnesic, that I had no memory of my life before. I had no words or language. No, no knowledge of Evan Alexander's life, none of my religious beliefs, uh, none of my scientific knowledge, absolutely none of that got into the NDE itself. Uh, and that part is very strange. And, and it took me months and even years to figure out why that might be. But I think it was uh, largely because some of the deepest lessons I had to learn involved that complete loss of memory. When I first came back to this world, uh, my knowledge of neuroscience wasn't there. It, it took two months to return to me. Uh, and so I just, I believed what my doctors told me. Uh, you know, my doctors, for one thing, were shocked I was coming back. They said, we did not expect you to come back to this world at all. But my gosh, you're making uh, this dramatic recovery. But they, as when I would try and tell them about this profound uh, journey I witnessed deep in coma, they would pat me on the back and say, well, your brain was soaking in pus. You know, the dying brain does all kinds of tricks. So you can just forget about it. And for a while, that was good enough knowledge until, uh, you know, I kept going back to the hospital, uh, uh, going through my scans, medical records, neurologic exams, talking it over with my doctors. 
and it didn't line up. Just as the three physicians who wrote that uh, medical case report uh, had to explain to the peer reviewers that the reason that this deadly case had a had a good outcome had to do with the fact I had a near-death experience. And uh, I knew the profound nature of what happened to me, uh, but as my my knowledge came back of neurosurgery and my uh, gleaning all the details of those scans showing all eight lobes of the brain affected and, and the neurologic exam showing extensive damage. I mean, I couldn't have had a dream or hallucination or drug effect because those parts of my brain were too badly damaged. Uh, you know, that was the thing that to me really got my attention early on uh, in investigating this was uh, there was some, like, I love how, uh, uh, David uh, Thoreau used to say when something was just demanded explanation, he said it was like a, finding a trout in the milk. And, and that's exactly what this is like for me. It was just shocking. And that's why I wrote the book Proof of Heaven, because as a scientist, as a neurosurgeon, I realized this tells us something profound about consciousness and relationship of brain and mind. But it's not along the lines of, you know, my prior materialist uh, neuroscience beliefs about brain creating consciousness. And that's because that is a false model. Uh, you know, the world is being fooled by uh, the media that promote materialist science as if it's true, because when it comes to consciousness, it's absolutely false. And there are hundreds of scientists around the world who are studying this. And for your listening audience who want to know more, I would steer them to, uh, uh, GalileoCommission.org. Uh, that's a, a statement made by a group of more than a hundred scientists. I'm one of the advisors, scientific advisors to that group. Uh, but uh, it will show you that <clears throat> there's a tremendous revolution going on. In fact, I would also point out uh, that my partner Karen and I, Karen Newell, uh, we've written a book, Living in a Mindful Universe. You know that third book that you mentioned that is all about this scientific revolution. Uh, and materialism is dead, you know, in a, from a scientific viewpoint, it's already dead. But now we have to work out the details of how all this works. But it does open the doors for tremendous power for the human spirit and shows us that we're much more than just a little being living in a physical body from birth to death and nothing more than that. Yeah. You go. Oh, yeah. So I was going to say... Uh, I've been reading a, a ton of books as well. I mean, I read a ton of spiritual books as well as practical books. And uh, uh, just for my own education, I have a th huge first for knowledge. Um, and it's, it's interesting that you said, you know, that E. coli is, is mainly in babies because, you know, when you hit a certain point or a certain age, it's almost like a rebirth within you. So, you know, I, 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 you know a bunch of my whoever grandparents would feel a lust of energy when they hit a certain age because it's almost like them being reborn as a refreshment to the, to the physical body. I mean, right. again, this is me analyzing spiritually of, of the attraction to the actual illness. Uh, but I, but I, I, you know, I feel like we had Damien Eccles on who, who was amazing. He was on death row for 28 years, um, was in like, you know, a small cell for literally 28 years. And, and you know. Such a crazy story. If you uh, haven't, haven't heard of him, he's. I have not heard that story, but I'll have to check out your. Uh, West Memphis Free, which was three teenagers who were arrested by these cops and just basically thrown in death row and was there forever. And they oh wouldn't let them out. And he said, it didn't happen to me. It happened for me. And I felt like, the, I feel like reading your book, that's almost the same kind of explanation. The fact that you went to this, you know, this, this experience, this NDE, 
without knowledge of who you are in physical terms because yeah. you wouldn't have been able to experience what you experienced knowing where you came from. It had to be a completely new out-of-body experience for you, um, which I love. And I want to, you know, pull you back a little to back to the NDE. So, uh -huh. you know, you're, 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 you end up at, at the hospital, which you have no recollection of. And you, I guess you can't pinpoint exactly when, where you, when you went. To, to I have no I have no memory of any of that. I mean, from my point of view, I, I had about two and a half, three hours at home that morning, getting increasingly sick with a headache and the back pain, and then I just started having seizures, and I was gone from this world. So I have absolutely no memory whatsoever of you know when the EMTs came to our home and uh, put in the IVs and took me off to the uh, Lynchburg General Hospital emergency room. I have absolutely zero memory of any of that. I was far gone from this world. Uh, and in fact, the first memories that I can claim of this world beyond that point uh, were memories that had to happen like five or six days later as I was starting to emerge from coma when after this extraordinary spiritual journey, uh, you know, that I describe in great detail in Proof of Heaven, uh, at the very end of it all, I, I remember seeing these six faces that appeared and they were very important um, I had no idea who they were. They would say some words to me, but I couldn't understand. All, it was all gibberish. Uh, but I remember those faces as vividly right now as if this happened yesterday. Uh, and they were faces of people who were there, loved ones, family and friends who were in the ICU room the last 24 hours of coma. And that's why they were so important, because there were also many family and friends who had been there earlier that week who I had no memory of whatsoever. And so those memories, as kind of murky and disjointed as they were, helped me to put a time anchor uh, at the very end of this extraordinary journey that to me, uh, if you would ask me in those first few weeks, how long were you on this journey? I would have said months or years. It was a very extraordinary journey, but it had to fit within seven Earth days. And in fact, most of the evidence is that all of it occurred between days one and five of my coma. Uh, and of course, that part is a, a profound mystery because, as I said earlier, the evidence of damage to my neocortex and brainstem actually was was so extensive that there was no brain mechanism there that could support a dream or hallucination at all. And those parts of the brain were off. So, uh, and to have an, and the other thing that's important to point out is these experiences. Uh, most people describe them as being way too real to be real. Those were the words I used with my oldest son when uh, I got out of the hospital uh, and he came home from school and uh, gave me a big hug. And he said there was like a light shining in me, like I was far more present than I'd ever been. <clears throat> and at the time, I was still believing what my doctors had told me. You know, it was all a vast hallucination of some sort, even though that made no sense given the, the depth of my coma from the medical records. Uh, but it's it's much more real than this world, and to have you know a very complex ultra reality uh, that's so meaningful and memorable uh, that you'll remember it in detail, you know, 50 years later. Uh, how does that happen when the brain is actually getting destroyed? That was the part I had to answer, and yet uh, we have scientific answers to those kind of questions now. For example, one of the things that the physicians who wrote that case report uh, brought up is that there are a number of, of scientific studies, and we, we also discuss these in Living in a Mindful Universe, uh, using functional MRI and magnetoencephalography, other ways of assessing brain activity uh, 
in people who are under the influence of powerful psychedelic drugs like psilocybin, magic mushrooms, or uh, LSD, or um, um, DMT, dimethyltryptamine, the active principle in ayahuasca, and they all are serotonin 2A uh, drugs. And the thing is, when you do these scientific studies with functional MRI and magnetoencephalography, you find the brains in all of those people, and you can actually measure it uh, as correlating with the most profound phenomenal experience on those drugs correlates to the, the greatest inactivation of the brain. The brain is not doing all that. You know, people have been under the influence of those drugs, and I'm not recommending the casual use of those drugs at all, because I think if you have any mental or spiritual instability, they can kick you off the edge of the cliff. But I'm glad that science is researching them. For example, psilocybin now is showing tremendous promise in alleviating addiction, uh, alcoholism, fear of death in cancer patients, things like that. And I think there's a tremendous role to be played by these uh, plant medicines or entheogens, as I prefer to call them. Uh, but the reality is the scientific side of that study will leave you greatly mystified because uh, anybody who's ever been on those drugs would think, well, wow, that was so amazing. And my brain would probably light up like a Christmas tree. But no, your brain is actually going dark and getting out of the way. That's exactly what I talked about in Proof of Heaven. In fact, one of those first papers on that topic from Robin Carhart-Harris at Imperial College in London about psilocybin. I actually have in the bibliography a proof of heaven, but the textual description of it got uh, stripped out by the editors. But the important thing to point out is it made perfect sense to me that as my neocortex was being destroyed by this uh, bacterial meningoencephalitis, my conscious awareness was set free and liberated to a much higher level. And of course, that's what all near-death experiencers are describing if they've been clinically dead and their brain has gone inactive. Uh, but in my case, the reason the physicians and scientific community loves it has to do with the, the documented damage to my neocortex. And, and there's really no way to explain any kind of dream or hallucination and my recovery, given that amount of damage. Wow. So yeah. um, do, we, do, do we partake in a little shrooms now and again? <laughs> Sorry, in the little little shrooms. Yeah. Well, you know, as I said, I'm I'm not sitting here recommending that. In fact, what I recommend uh, and what I use routinely, uh, like to return to my near death experience, and what I've used to explore it, is actually differential frequency sound brain entrainment uh, using sound. Differential frequencies is something discovered in the mid 1800s. Um, by a Prussian physicist that they can uh, cause a strange sensation in the brain. And then in the 20th century, people use differential frequency brain entrainment or what's generically called binaural beats, but sacred acoustics is what I recommend. And a little full disclosure is sacred acoustics is, was co-founded by my uh, partner, uh, life partner, Karen Newell, who's also the co-author of that book, Living in a Mindful Universe. And we discussed the use of binaural beats in there uh, and sacred acoustics for deep meditative experience. Um, as I was pointing out, the mid-20th century, Robert Monroe noted that such sounds could be used for out-of-body experiences. People who were into remote viewing, that is the, you know, the psychic spy programs and different ways of gleaning information from the universe uh, at a distance would find that binaural beats help them very much. Uh, and just I would encourage people who want a tool to get deep into conscious exploration, uh, try out sacred, acoustic, uh, sacred acoustics. And that's not just my opinion. If you read Dark Night, Early Dawn, 
a beautiful book by Christopher Bache, B-A-C-H-E, who's done a tremendous amount of work, spiritual work around uh, psychedelics and other ways of getting there. Uh, in Dark Night, Early Dawn, he actually compares uh, his use of high-dose LSD with differential frequency brain entrainment. And he was using a fairly primitive form of it. Um, but he comes away in that book suggesting you can go as far and, and, and glean the same lessons using differential frequency sound as you can with high-dose LSD. And especially when you start to understand the mechanisms of these things, you see why the sound can be so powerful. Uh, because those psychedelic drugs are mainly having their effect way up in the neocortex in recently evolved circuits. And so they can give you a little flavor, a little peek through the keyhole that you might get through a near-death experience. Uh, but the differential frequency fr sound is having an impact in your lower brainstem in circuits that arose more than 300 million years ago. And I think that's one of the reasons why, uh, if you look at the testimonials page on the sacredacoustics.com website, you'll find people having extraordinary spiritual experiences using sound alone. It's far safer than the psychedelics. And in, from my point of view, uh, it's more effective when it's applied, you know, on a regular basis. Yeah. I think you, you mentioned in a previous um, episode, Noah, that you sleep to binary beats or. Oh yeah. I have like, uh, I have a certain playlist that like Mary, who I introduced you to, have you ever heard of, um, Dr. Mary Hensley. I know the name. Okay. Um, so she's, she's like, I call her my fairy godmother. She is uh, like, she is great. She is amazing. I and no, I think I know the one you're talking about. She yeah. had, she had kind of a, a similar experience to you. She had a, um, a car crash, uh, a long, a while ago when, where she, could see everything happening yes, from bird's yes, eye view. Her, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. She, she actually has a middle name that I, I usually think of associated with her name. That's why I didn't recognize Helen, Dr. Mary yeah. Helen. Hensley. Exactly. Yeah. That, that yeah. was it. Yes. I'm uh, very familiar with her work. She's uh, wonderful. She's incredible. And, um, she honestly had changed my life. When I met her, I was very depressed, so much anxiety. Um, that's just something that I was, born with uh obviously you know there's been a lot that's happened in the past couple of years and stuff and um my vocal coach actually was really is really good friends with her and uh -huh. she was like you have to meet mary you have to meet mary like she she can come and she'll work on you and she'll do some healing and we just got really close and she made me like a playlist to sleep to uh with you know, all these sounds and it, it helps so much. Uh, and she'll come and she'll work on me and then she'll give me a playlist. And, um, well, it's, it's, it's nice. We were actually just talking about, um, trying to get me out to Ireland so I could go stay with her and her family for two weeks. Cause she, mm -hmm. she wants me to come out there so she can like do some healing and her and her girls are so incredible. And, um, yeah, you she, might want to take her up on that. I, I, I definitely am going to, she definitely, has changed my life since she's been in it. But um, yeah, Lou, to answer your question, she, she made me a playlist and um, she also has a ton of incredible books. I don't know if you've, uh, if you've seen her, her books, but she's incredible. And um, mm -hmm. she, her story is like, it's just like yours where you're, you just kind of left speechless for the first time hearing it. And, you know, 
It's That's great. Well, yeah. if you're interested, uh, you might try sacred acoustics because I, 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 find I already, I already, horrible. don't worry. I've already thought about it. I'm like Good. looking it up as we speak. Don't worry. Well, I, I've used them to return to my NDE. Uh, I, I meditate an hour or two a day using sacred acoustics. I've been doing that for 10 years plus. Uh, and in fact, in living in a mindful universe, we discuss some of the extraordinary uh, kind of revelations uh, that we've we've come up with on this personal journey and recovering my connection with uh, with with the NDE. And it's not just about harvesting the memories; uh, it's uh, much more about developing a relationship with the various uh, you know beings and entities and that incredibly uh, that ineffable. Uh, healing force of pure unconditional love, that God force, uh, and developing that. Although I, I must confess that uh, in all of my hard work and meditating to return to that NDE, I have not yet fully duplicated that full bore uh, ultra reality that I experienced uh, through the the especially the Gateway Valley and the core realms uh, that I describe in Proof of Heaven. I mean that was absolutely extraordinary. But it could be that I'll have to wait till the next time I consciousness is that fully disengaged from my uh, mm. brain and, uh, and, and body. Yeah. Uh, but I'll keep trying with the meditation. It's, um, I always find when things become so uh, successful for me is when I let go. Yes. And so well, that's a huge part of it. Yeah. In fact, the way I opened the book proof of heaven was I talk about the dreams of flying I used to have as a, as a kid. And that the most important thing to learn was the more you embraced it, the more you crashed. So you had to let go, let go of the outcome and just let the universe take you where it's going to take you. And that's a, a lot of how I treat the sounds in sacred acoustics is I just ride those tones. You know, so many of us think that we identify with that little running stream of consciousness in our head, you know, that little linguistic brain, that ego voice. Uh, and we think that's who we are. Well, that's not our consciousness. Our consciousness is the awareness of that voice. And so what Karen and I often do in our workshops is we help people develop a much richer relationship with that awareness, what we call the neutral observer. Uh, and that is the part of you that expands tremendously uh, when your brain and body die or when you have a near-death experience. That part uh, becomes much grander. That's what NDEers have been telling us for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. uh, but we can all develop that relationship much more fully just through meditation, centering prayers and ways of going within. And uh, a lot of the scientific model uh, that is emerging about consciousness and nature of mind is that we're really all sharing one mind. Just as quantum physicists all postulated back in the mid 20th century, because in investigating the subatomic world, they found evidence that we're all really sharing one consciousness. The consciousness is not derivative from physical matter of the brain and things like that. And that's what this scientific revolution in consciousness is all about. But as you realize that we don't, that the brain doesn't create consciousness, but mm -hmm. it serves as a filter that allows primordial consciousness in, that's when you start to realize we're well, going within my own mind is a powerful way to get out into this universe and to have much greater influence on what happens in this universe. It, it's the way we are all connected uh, is through this uh, primordial mind. And Karen always reminds me that it's truly a form of heart consciousness, uh, a true, you know, that binding force of love is, is part of what, binds us together through this uh, kind of notion of the one mind. Yeah. Uh, a very important concept coming out of modern scientific study of the nature of reality. And yeah. it's an important one for this world because so much of this world's troubles 
are due to the fact that we falsely uh, sense ourselves as separate, separate from each other, separate from animals and plants, separate from uh, the universe at large. And that is a very much, uh, you know, a misunderstanding. It's a myth because, in fact, at the very deepest levels of our conscious awareness, we're all deeply connected. And that's why going within, uh, telepathy, uh, distance healing, uh, all these things, all the uh, evidence of non-local consciousness uh, is so powerful. Uh, but it also shows us uh, clues as to how powerful we are uh, as beings and that we have much greater influence on our health and on other things in our lives uh, than the conventional materialist kind of falsely separatist notion of existence uh, would lead us to believe. Yeah. What was the, um, I think you had a name, Noah, for your inner voice. Oh, Oh, I forget. Oh, like, yeah, I, I forget which, what I named her. I'll, all my fans are going to be like, how did you forget? Uh, yeah, I have like a, inner voice. oh, oh, yeah. My shitty inner self, we named her Susan. So like whenever, 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 like my shitty inner self is picking on me, I like to like mentally think, okay, I'm going to like block this bitch Susan out and I'm going to put her to the side. And like, that's kind of my, thank you, Lou. I forgot about that. Um, I'm like, okay. inner voice. I'm like inner voice, inner voice. Um, but yeah. So like whenever I was doing this thing, cause you know, I've, I've struggled with, I talk about this a lot, uh, like body, body dysmorphia. And um, I've had that since a young age. And uh, there's something about myself where, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of times in my life, I, really can't find kind things to think towards myself where they almost think like, I'm like, am I broken? Like, I'm, is, it's like, why is it so hard for me to like think of the positive things? And I'm sitting there in a chair with my therapist and we're talking about this. And so, you know, we do this thing where we kind of separate my like positive side, put her to the left of me, put my, my, my side that, you know, has all these issues with my, with myself and, you know, uh, put her to the right side and we like kind of gave them each a little name and yeah. Well, good. I, I love how Michael Singer in his book, the untethered soul, he calls that little voice in our head, the little ego voice. He calls it the annoying roommate. And yeah. I think that's a very important way to look at it. And, and that's what I, I, one thing I love about meditation uh, and we do a lot of meditation play shops to teach people a lot of these things. But uh, one of the things I love is developing that, sense of that kind of higher soul and that connectedness with that primordial mind. Uh, and, and then I'm leaving, you know, that little Evan Alexander ego way down in the, in, in the dust, leaving right. it far behind because we are all, we all have access to uh, aspects of ourselves that are far grander and more powerful uh, and noble beings that can help uh, lead us in the right direction. So yeah. that little ego can be very troublesome. Uh, we find that out in an alcoholism and addiction uh, all the time. The ego would rather see itself survive, uh, even at the cost of, you know, the host. Uh, it doesn't care so much about the host. In fact, I've heard of people doing a psychological ritual kind of uh, uh, ego sacrifice uh, with a rebirth of their ego to allow them to head, up, head, head into a more healthy relationship with themselves. Uh, but this is really about kind of fully investigating who we are, 
what our reason for existence is uh, and how we can uh, uh, better uh, kind of treat ourselves and treat others. And it's really through acknowledging that binding force of love and uh, treating ourselves with kindness uh, and compassion and mercy, uh, and then sharing that with others uh, you know, around this world. There's not a problem in this world that wouldn't get better uh, if all humans started uh, showing you know, some respect and, and love and kindness and compassion and mercy to all their fellow beings you know, at least once a day. Mm -hmm. uh, it would make this place uh, far better and more harmonious very quickly. I think, um, I, I'm not sure if you read that book, Man, Man's Search for Meaning, uh, by, I think it's Viktor Frankl. Yes, Frankl. Incredible book. And he, yeah. um, you know, he, he touches upon basically, you know, that everyone's searching for meaning in their lives. Um, and the reason why all these anxieties and depression is because people are constantly searching, but you have to flip it to a point where your life is the meaning. Period. Right. Absolutely. Everything else is just, is just is, whereas the meaning is you, you are the meaning. You yes. know, alive, you talking on this podcast, you breathing, you all this type of stuff. That's the meaning of life. Yes, well, it is. And it's a beautiful thing to wake up to. And of course, his origin, you know, in a, a surviving a concentration camp during the Holocaust. I mean, talk about incredible challenges. Uh, and yet he came away with some absolutely magnificent lessons about life and living. And as you point out, uh, finding meaning in life. And I think that's one thing that so many people lack today. Uh, uh, especially with this pandemic shutdown and the economic uh, collapse, a lot of the racial disparities and all that, uh, people are having trouble kind of struggling to find meaning. And yet what I would point out is often, just as you find that in addiction and alcoholism work, the key is having that gift of desperation, you know, that hardship. And uh, in fact, I, I stopped drinking back in 1991 and uh, through a lot of love and help from my family, it was never a problem at work, but on my nights off, I tended to depend a little too heavily on alcohol. And I look back on it now very fondly that I was born alcoholic in the first place. That's the part I'm grateful for, that I had that challenge, the hardship. And in many ways, we can look at the challenges we face today with the pandemic uh, and the economic uh, uh, hardships as a, a, a collective gift of desperation. And I believe they've revealed uh, some of the problems with our society, with our, uh, certainly in the United States, a problem with our kind of safety net, our, our economic polarization, the fact that healthcare is not uh, widely available to our populace, et cetera. These are all things that need to get much better. And the COVID pandemic and the hardships from it can help us realize uh, these problems in our society and come away building a much stronger society as we emerge from all this. And I believe that that will ultimately be the gift of this uh, year 2020, which I think most of us are going to be ready to leave behind uh, with COVID and with economic collapse and all and get back to a more normal lifestyle. But when we do so, uh, we can take these lessons and it will help us build a far better world that will do a much better job of taking care of the people at the lower end of the socioeconomic ladder than our previous system did. Mm -hmm. I want to, um, I love that. I mean, uh, I completely agree. Um, I think the negative effects of COVID has actually brought out, out positive change or, or where change is needed. 
And I think that's people actually taking a step back from the busyness and the of life and realizing that we need to fix certain things as a collective. Absolutely. Uh, that, that, that kind of boils back to, you know, we're all connected. We're all one. We're all, you know, all part of that life. Um, I just, I want to bring it back to your NDE because I think the, the story is phenomenal. I mean, what you describe is, is mind blowing. Um, you know, during the end in the, you describe being aware of this place called the earthworms eye view. Yes. That's where it all started. Yes. The, the, the starting point. Can you just describe that and just, just kind of, uh, you know, the, the emotion and feeling behind it too? Cause I mean, it's, it's phenomenal. Like, you know, everyone should read proof of heaven. It's an incredible book. Um, and we'll, we'll obviously touch up on some of it now, but I'm talking about in detail. It's incredible. Um, and it's almost like the starting point of the fear is first because you're not aware of where you are and then right. progressing awareness. She's like, you're, the fear kind of di- dissipates. Yes. Well, it, you know, it's, it's important to remind people amnesia. I had no knowledge of earth, Evan Alexander's life. I had no words, language, uh, knowledge of humans. Every bit of that was wiped out. I had an empty slate. Uh, and that's how I found myself in this earthworm's eye view, a very primitive coarse, unresponsive realm. Uh, and, and I had no body awareness during any part of the entire uh, week-long coma. Uh, but I was a speck of awareness. And in that earthworm eye view, I just, I remember this uh, feeling of roots or blood vessels all around me. So all, all of my kind of uh, awareness was there. Um, uh, but it was very dark and murky and it seemed to go forever and ever. And there was this pounding sound in the background, like someone smashing an anvil. Uh, and I know I had no memory moment to moment, so it seemed to go forever, but it didn't because there came a slowly spinning, a pure white light that came towards me. It uh, was uh, spinning around and had fine silvery and golden tendrils off of it. Uh, and as it came towards me, I recognized also that it came packaged with a perfect musical melody. Uh, and music, of course, is, is a very crucial thing to understand here. Now, in those realms, you're not hearing music with ears. You're not seeing things with eyes. You're actually becoming huge swathes of the scene, what I call knowledge through identification, as part of your uh, kind of education on this journey. Um, and so the sounds can be uh, amazing, far beyond anything that we think of as music in this world. Uh, but the key thing about the sound is I could use my memory of those musical notes to help me conjure up these portals between levels. Uh, that was the crucial thing. And that's why, to me, it's interesting that today I use sacred acoustics. I use sound to get back into that. But in traversing those spiritual realms, the way I was able to maneuver was through uh, music. And that uh, portal from the earth where my view led up into this ultra real, rich, vibrant, alive uh, gateway valley. Talk about meaning and purpose. It was just filled. It was like a world of ideals. Uh, like Plato wrote about how there was a world of ideals. It was kind of the template on which all the kind of uh, uh, imperfect aspects of the material world were originally based. Well, this world, that gateway valley was very much like a world of ideals for the soul. That's where we would go through our uh, life reviews and uh, reunite with our higher soul and with souls of departed loved ones. That's where I first came into contact with that infinitely loving and healing God force of pure love. That's what near-death experiencers come in touch with, and they come back to this world and never fear dying again because they realize it's not the end. It's just part of the spiritual journey. Uh, And in that gateway valley, I was aware of this beautiful 
uh, meadow down below that was lush with life, no sign of any death or decay, sparkling waterfalls into these crystal blue pools. And what I recall is thousands of beings below us that were dancing, lots of joy and merriment and children playing and dogs jumping, incredible festivities, all because up above were these swooping orbs, pure uh, oval orbs of, of uh, golden light leaving sparkling trails against a blue-black velvety sky. And uh, those orbs, as I wrote it all down uh, weeks later in trying to record all this, uh, I said there were angelic choirs, and it was those chants and anthems and hymns that they were emanating that were so powerful, they would thunder through my awareness. Uh, and I was there, my awareness was a speck on a butterfly wing. Millions of other butterflies looping and spiraling in vast formations above this meadow. Uh, and the best part about it all was that I wasn't alone. There was a beautiful young woman uh, on that butterfly wing, sparkling blue eyes, high cheekbones, a broad smile, high forehead. She never said a word to me. She never had to. But her thoughts, her emotional truth, her knowing and her message came into me uh, telepathically, very deeply. And I think it's the, the fundamental message that I was to bring back to this world. And that's uh, really why I shared the story. But that message was very simple for all of us. You are deeply loved and cherished forever. You have nothing to fear. You will be taken care of. And I cannot tell you how comforting and refreshing and reassuring, uh, uh, you know, having that emotional truth kind of broadcast through my being. Um, all of a sudden things started to line up and I felt like I am where I'm supposed to be. Uh, you know, this is uh, a spiritual home. It felt very much like a home. And of course that was just the beginning of the journey and witnessing all that was going on below me. And then realizing that those angelic choirs up above were providing yet another uh, musical portal because those chants and anthems and hymns converted into this vast swirling, uh, a portal that led me up higher and higher levels. I remember seeing all of the lowest realms and material realm and four dimensional space time and the lower spiritual realms collapsing down. Uh, and uh, then this, this sense that I was entering into higher and higher levels until all of the, the, the uh, spiritual realms had basically been collapsed into this complex oversphere. And at that point I was in this realm that I referred to as the core but the core is the furthest from any kind of uh, explanation in human language that you could possibly have. And I have to use analogies like it was like standing on the edge of a black hole with one a foot inside the event horizon, one outside, one where time had stopped and uh, the entire universe was, was uh, frozen in eternity. And then that first set of parcellations where all the many steps that occur through those spiritual realms coming all the way out to this material realm would occur. Uh, and in that core realm taught, we'll teach you many things. You'll be going back. You're not here to stay. Uh, and then the many lessons, you know, I discuss a lot of that in Proof of Heaven uh, and in the many talks that I've given. But what would happen is I'd cycle back down. Inexplicably, I would just reappear down in that earthworm eye view. Uh, and that was the fascinating thing. And that's where I learned that by remembering the musical notes of the melody, I could conjure up that portal and ascend back up into that ultra real gateway valley that lovely girl on the butterfly wing. And then the angelic choirs would take me to higher levels again. And I passed through all of these spiritual levels several times on the journey until the time came where, as they'd promised me in the core, you know, you're not here to stay, you're going back. Uh, but I, I found myself back in that earth where my view, but the, 
the musical notes no longer work to conjure up that portal. But to, and to say I was, you know, depressed, blue at that time would be a vast understatement. But I also knew by that point I could trust. I would be taken care of just as I was promised. Every time I pass through that, uh, that beautiful gateway valley, you will be taken care of. Uh, you were deeply loved and cherished. And uh, I knew I would be taken care of. And that's when, uh, even in this murkiness uh, and no longer being able to conjure up the portals to higher levels, uh, that's when I saw thousands of beings going off around in circles out to the distance. And many with their heads bowed and uh, arms up like that, some holding candles, some with hoods on, and this murmuring energy coming up from all of them. And in my writings, weeks later, I call that the power of prayer. That's how I sensed it. And the thing that, to me, that was so astonishing at that level of the journey was how that uh, murmuring energy brought the very same love, comfort, and at-homeness that I had felt in those higher spiritual levels that were so ultra-real. And yet here was that same emotional uh, comfort coming up from these uh, uh, thousands of beings around me with their heads uh, bowed in prayer. And uh, that came to me, and that dark night of the soul that I talked about earlier disappeared in a flash when I came back from this extraordinary journey. I will never doubt the reality of that infinitely loving force again. That's why uh, I've devoted my life to really uh, investigating this more deeply as a scientist and helping to share um, that with the world. Uh, it's a very important lesson that comes out of NDEs, especially when we come to know that materialist science uh, has died uh, and that the quantum-informed uh, science of consciousness, which fully allows for things not only the afterlife, but also reincarnation, that our souls come back again and again uh, in this process of ascendance towards oneness with the divine. I didn't realize before my coma that there was a, a rich scientific literature on reincarnation. Uh, if you go to uvadops.org, University of Virginia Division of Perceptual Studies, you'll find a tremendous uh, scientific literature supporting all of this, including more than 2,500 cases of past life memories in children, where the best explanation is actually of reincarnation. So obviously, to answer this, these questions in a modern scientific sense about nature of human spirit and of our reality, uh, we just need a much bigger theater of uh, operation and explanation to cover it all. Oh, I mean, it, it's, it, it's incredible. I mean, as an outsider listening to that, it almost sounds, um, because I, you know, I'm a firm believer in you create your life now in thoughts, feelings, and emotions, but in death, you also do the same thing. Um, yes. so, I mean, to an outsider, it sounds like it sounds quite biblical, um, your experience. Uh, I, do you think that's down to the relationship with the church that you had, you know, the, 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 the prayer, the hymns, you know, cause I mean, well, anyone who has ever studied NDEs will, will know that they every single one is so is they're all different. They're all tailor made. You know, an interesting thing. Yeah. That's a very important point that you make there. They're always tailor made for the individual soul. But the interesting thing is when you study them in large numbers and I'm, I've, you know, not only read thousands of NDE accounts, I've also met, uh, you know, hundreds of people who have shared their NDEs with me. Usually, they've never told anybody before. Mm -hmm. So uh, that trust that I've engendered by sharing my story also allows people to trust me and share with me. Uh, but I'll tell you, there's an interesting thing about, I, I think it's crucial that I was amnesic, that I had no religious memories at all going into this. Uh, and also, I'll point out that when I first 
uh, in the first years, you know, it took um, uh, proof of heaven didn't come out until about four years after my uh, coma experience. But for about two and a half years before the book came out, I'd been giving talks about my experience, presenting to various groups. Uh, I would make these uh, DVDs and send them out to people, and they got circulated around a lot. And um, I started hearing back from people, especially interesting to me, uh, was hearing back from mystics of many different traditions. I would hear from Kabbalists, from Jewish mystics, from Sufis, Islamic mystics, Christian mystics, Baha'i faith, Buddhists, Hindus, uh, Zoroastrians, uh, Shintoists. I mean, I heard from religious systems all around the world about how my journey, as it was portrayed uh, in Proof of Heaven, echoed perfectly their of deepest uh, prophetic and mystical traditions. And to me, it simply pointed out the reality that all of our religious systems have a common basis. Uh, and although the, you know, the scripture and the kind of superficial dogma uh, can be uh, conflicting and can be independent uh, from other religions and, and uh, all that, the deeper reality is the mystical and meditative traditions of all these great faiths converge on a deeper unified truth about connectedness, about love. Um, and so in many ways, I would say NDEs are the tip of the spear to help reunite uh, religions of this world. I mean, there's no question from the scientific standpoint that what we're really talking about is a spiritual universe and that we're spiritual beings. And to try and pretend that it all has some mechanistic, mechanical uh, underlying, you know, with the subatomic particles uh, is just dead wrong. Uh, and that's where this kind of bigger vision is coming into the scientific world. You cannot even explain quantum physics without uh, actually having a deeper understanding of consciousness and its reality in life. In fact, I would say that the emerging scientific worldview that is certainly what we propose in living in a mindful universe uh, is that of objective idealism, that there, uh, that the universe and, and the events that we see unfolding are primarily from a mental realm to which sentient beings have access. Uh, there's not this kind of blind bottom-up causality that, uh, for example, I believe before my coma as a reductive materialist neuroscientist, you know, thinking the physical world was all that exists and that uh, the brain uh, you know, is, is simply a, a lump of, of matter following the rules of physics, chemistry, and biology, and therefore uh, that we don't even have free will and that consciousness is an illusion. That's all false. And that's what my journey showed me. And it, and it alerted me to the scientific community around this world that is pursuing this much bigger vision of who we are with the primacy of consciousness really leading the way. Uh, and we no longer have excuses uh, like materialist science would scoff at your notion of having free will uh, if it's all just uh, chemical reactions and electron fluxes in the brain. But that's why this scientific revolution is so important is we realize we've always had it backwards and that mind and consciousness are what create all of the emerging world. That's why things like placebo effect actually work. That's why, you know, we've used placebo effect for more than six decades as a gold standard uh, to assess any new healing modality. And yet essentially placebo effect is just admitting that our beliefs and our attitudes uh, and kind of our emotions uh, can dictate our health or not. 
And uh, this is something that's a very important lesson for all of us to learn, especially uh, as this world wakes up to our, our sense of responsibility uh, for the world that we should be creating if we want to claim to be homo sapiens. You know, sapiens means wise. Well, when I look at uh, this planet, I'm not so sure I see very much wisdom when I look at all the warfare and violence, conflict, economic polarization, uh, the climate change due to our addiction to fossil fuels, uh, to a, a gyre twice the size of the state of Texas rotating in the Pacific Ocean of plastic that's been discarded. Uh, you know, that's not homo sapiens. Uh, that's uh, absurdity. And we need to wake up to that. That would be men. Yes. And we need to take responsibility uh, as homo sapiens and really be stewards for this planet. Absolutely. This has been incredible. I've, I've just been pretty quiet, like just cause I've listening to you. Uh, uh, I don't know. This has been great. <laughs> I honestly am kind of speechless just by everything and um, hearing your story is uh, also where you, where you come from and being adopted is so similar to my mom's life story. Uh, and um, my mom, I remember her, uh, telling me and also when I was younger uh you know her looking for her birth parents and when she did find them uh she they like turned her down a couple times and um and you know yeah and you know uh when you were talking about how long it took you to find them or or even get you know to a place of talking with them because you know now she and her birth mom are actually you know they have a really good relationship um And yeah, and, and, you know, I don't know, hearing how close that was to everything. uh, I hear my mom talk about that all the time about how lucky she was to have gotten the the family that she got, which isn't something that you hear, you know, too. Right. Well, I was, I was similarly uh, blessed with a wonderful adoptive family, but so was she. Yeah. Most of it, we, it's, uh, we kind of look for that, you know, our connection, mm-hmm. our roots is important. And that's why I spent those years when I was younger looking for my birth mother and, and never mm-hmm. found her. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had gotten used to that. But, you know, the other interesting thing is I think that whole adoption wound, that abandonment wound, uh, in many ways is universal. You know, we, we come into this world and uh, we separate from that heavenly realm. And again, this this involves a deep reading and understanding and knowing of that reincarnation literature, which I highly recommend anyone who's interested to pursue. It's not about whether you want to believe it. It's not about religious beliefs. It's simply the scientific data of all these cases of children who remember past lives. Uh, but the interesting thing is when you when you really take that seriously, you realize that our souls come back into these lives and we have this temporary uh, this program forgetting where we're we're meant to forget the between lives and the past lives. And in fact, if you want to recover past life memories in children, you have to harvest them before age about five or six, because then there are natural processes that cover them over. Although they can be recovered later through hypnotic regression, NDEs and all that. But my point is that I believe that that separation from source is universal. And so much of our lives as a, a higher soul and, uh, you know, as a seeker um, in all of this is trying to recover that sense of belonging, that connection. That's why 
uh, meditation and centering prayer and uh, hypnotic regressions for past life and between life work, I think is so important, this whole world of transpersonal psychology, but also just these simple lessons and talking about it. Because so many people, I think, can come into more wholeness and more comfort and more a sense of meaning and purpose in their lives when they can more uh, firmly kind of attach uh, to their history. And, and that includes, uh, you know, before this lifetime uh, and, and by making the plans for this lifetime. Uh, I think all of it is a tremendous package of self-discovery that can be very healing for each and every one of us. So many of us go through life and just carry those burdens of childhood wounds, you know, kind of tied up in our heart, uh, and, and they can rule our lives uh, throughout unless we address them. There is no way out but through, and to uh, kind of face those kind of challenges and those issues of our past and, and face them, uh, you know, honestly and authentically uh, we can grow from them. We can mature and come into the much higher souls we came here to be. And I think that is what leads to a far greater satisfaction in this life, uh, is a much deeper knowing of self and of one's relationship with the universe. And that's the kind of thing that uh, Karen and I talk about a lot. And anybody who's interested can uh, follow me more on ebonalexander.com or they can go to sacredacoustics.com. Or I would invite people to join us. Uh, Karen and I, back at the beginning of the pandemic, started a bi-weekly webinar and it's free and we invite anybody and everybody to join. Go to unitedinhopeandhealing.com uh, and you'll find there are a lot of, of fascinating guests we've, we've had on, on that. Uh, a lot of people in the NDE world, a lot of scientists involved in consciousness work um, and uh, uh, just a lot of spiritually enlightened folks that we've talked to that I think it's uh, uh, a good benefit to people, especially during the COVID pandemic when so many of us feel kind of disrupted and uh, kind of uprooted. So I would invite people united in hopeandhealing.com or evanalexander.com and sacredacoustics.com if you want to learn, learn more. Amazing. Amazing. Oh. <coughs> I'm sorry. Um, I want to touch back on the reincarnation thing because I mean, with a bunch of the NDEs, you know, they describe this place that they don't want to come back from. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this, this love, this compassion, this empathy, this no judgment. It's just, you know, I have eyes, but I, you know, I, I, I have no eyes, but I can see, I have no ears, but I can hear like all this right. type of thing. Why do we come back from that? Like, why would we? Well, why it's because this is where, and in fact, when you look at it in this bigger scale of admitting the scientific evidence supporting reincarnation and that all of us have been here many times before, you then start to realize this is where we get the work done. You know, this world is where souls actually grow. Uh, and that between lives, those beautiful heavenly realms, that it's, it's kind of like breathing. You take a breath in, you breathe out. And uh, in many ways, that's how reincarnation uh, and uh, life reviews were presented to me on my journey. Uh, was almost like breathing or like schools of flying fish in and out of the water. Um, and, but I, but what I, I came to see very clearly is this world, this material world is where we actually make the progress. And I believe that in fact, in the, in the deepest, uh, truest sense, we can bring that heavenly realm to earth as we, through prayer and meditation, start to glean this much deeper connection we have with that one mind, with that infinitely healing God force, uh, and realize that we're here to live these lives to grow into that. So, uh, it's not as if, uh, you know, you can kind of cop out and and, and uh, transition to those realms, sit around playing a harp on a cloud and 
and think you've gotten anywhere. That's not the mm-hmm. way it works. Mm-hmm. You know, this is really where uh, this life occurs. But the good news is we we have that respite uh, between lives to kind of regroup, go through that life review. You know, the life review is a very important concept. Goes back more than 2,400 years to the writings of Plato when he wrote about Armenian soldier Ur killed in battle. But he woke up on the funeral pyre before they lit it up. And he had a very simple message. When, you're, when you die, your life flashes before your eyes. And the only important thing you find in that uh, review of your life is how much love you have managed to share with the world. And that coming from an Armenian soldier who had been killed in battle. So it's an important lesson for us all. And the other thing I'll point out about life reviews, um, and that is that uh, they reveal the falsehood of the boundary of self, because so many people will describe a life review uh, as uh, feeling the emotional impact on those around them for their actions and thoughts. So you don't experience it from your perspective. You experience it from the point of view of those who were affected by you and your actions. Uh, And that's how it serves as a course corrective. So if if someone has been very busy handing out a lot of pain and suffering, even though there's no judgment for that in the life review, when you witness it in the setting of that infinitely healing love of that God force, and in the setting of your higher soul and soul group, you know, that kind of uh, lowly human uh, greed and uh, suffering and pain to others that kind of behavior just doesn't look so good. So the life review can be kind of hellish if, if you were busy handing that out to others. And yet it's not done in kind of a judgmental way. In many ways, it's almost done in a neutral fashion. And yet that background of that infinitely loving God force, that presence that is there, uh, helps to nudge all of us towards kind of a higher behavior. And, and that's why in the ears, when they come back to this world, they're less materialistic. They're much more prone to show love and compassion mercy for others, even if they were very atheistic and kind of militantly uh, aggressive and didn't give a damn about anybody else in this life, uh, going through a life review will help you kind of, uh, you know, sand down those rough edges and come back to this world more loving. And ultimately, that's where this world is headed. So this process of, of reincarnation coming back again and again and refinement and moving towards that oneness with the divine is not like a religious system where it's the, you know, get off the wheel of suffering, but it's much more uh, guided with grace and, and with that uh, uh, life being informed through that uh, healing force of love, of unconditional love, that all of us have the power to live. And that's where I think NDEs bring a tremendous lesson to this world uh, to help unify kind of our religious and spiritual nature uh, and get rid of one of the worst faith-based religions there is, and that's materialist science that really should have died a long time ago. And when I say that, I mean not quantum in form, because the, the, the quantum revolution has everything to do with acknowledging the primacy of consciousness in the universe. That's where we will ultimately come out uh, in the scientific revolution uh, that is absolutely crucial if we are to survive as a species in a planet. Mm-hmm. Um, I, have, I have just one more quick question before we kind of end the show, but, um, I've read a ton of NDE books. Um, and I want to touch up on, on the suicide aspect of it, just because I've had people in my life who have, who have killed themselves, who have come back to me in dreams and just pleading that they shouldn't have done it. And it being so real, but me being too young to even understand what it was or why it was or any of those type of things. 
from your experience, you know, with, with speaking to people and stuff, um, and every NDE I've ever read from people who come back from suicide is like, I shouldn't have done that. It's a place you go that isn't basically what you describe in Proof of Heaven. It's the opposite of that. Well, um, I, I think what happens is in the suicide, uh, they go through a life review where they realize how much love and comfort was available to them in this earthly realm that they were unaware of or uh, did not... Uh, just for some reason, they were disconnected like that. And there's one important thing I will mention about suicides, and we deal with suicide a lot. Uh, Karen and I do in our workshops and um, in our discussions and presentations, because there's a suicide epidemic going on in this world that is very, very threatening. Uh, and, and in many ways, we say it's because of the spiritual vacuum that has come out of materialist science and its kind of lead of kind of bleak separation and nothingness. Um, and the, the important thing to point out, though, and, and this comes from Raymond Moody, uh, mm -hmm. who's a close friend of ours. He's, of course, the, he wrote uh, Life After Life in 1975. He basically coined that term, uh, near-death experience. And one thing that he shared with us is that uh, one of the few things he can say with almost 100% assurance after more than four decades of studying NDEs and all of these aspects of human, uh, the human condition is that if someone tries to commit suicide and has any of the elements of an NDE, like uh, seeing the light, of uh, the sensing that infinitely healing love, encountering souls of departed loved ones, going through a life review, any aspect of that, and come back to this world, they will never attempt suicide again, according to Dr. Moody and his observations over these many decades. And I think that's very important because that also tells us what happens with those who are successful at suicide, who don't have an NDE, but go through and then, you know, have to face all that in the life review. And it's basically that the message of love is very profound uh, and that we are all deeply loved and cherished. We have nothing to fear. That's why that is such an important part of the book, Proof of Heaven. Uh, and it's really a lesson for all of us uh, to share uh, because suicide is not the right answer. Uh, and when I say that, uh, I will also say, though, as a physician, I am aware of cases where there's a tremendous amount of terminal uh, suffering of pain um, in a situation where Western medicine has nothing to offer. And if uh, prayer and meditation do not alleviate the suffering in that kind of a circumstance, I think there may be a role for euthanasia in very, very limited circumstances. But by and large, uh, suicide is not the right answer. And that is certainly something that those people who commit it and then, you know, have to communicate through an after-death communication, they do exactly what you say. But um, we also hear from people who are worried that their loved one may be tormented uh, in eternity for suicide. And, and I can tell you from my experience, no, that's never going to be the case. What they realize, uh, and the reason they have so such regret over it, is they realize that that love was there available to them, but for whatever reason, they were unable to appreciate that love when they were here on this earth. Mm -hmm. And that's the important thing. You always know that you can recover that deep sense of love and of connection, of meaning and purpose uh, when you go deep into your, your soul journey through prayer and meditation. Those deep truths will come uh, to be evident to you um, and that suicide is not the way out. Wow. I mean, I completely agree. Um, I, I think we should end that there because that was, I mean, 
I think, you know, a bunch of our listeners, um, you know, myself suffered from depression and anxieties and, you know, thought about had these thoughts and all that type of stuff. So I think hearing you say that coming from a place where you've experienced death firsthand and and come back with this experience, I think it's it's super telling. And and I just want to, you know, anyone out there who's suffering, just speak to someone. Just, I mean, well, it's, it's, please do. And, and I will also tell you that I think uh, uh, a lot of people have gained the kind of insight and understanding of this bigger world we're talking about, this bigger self and higher soul, uh, just through going through that united in hope and healing.com. If you go through that uh, free set of webinars, uh, uh, I think you'll find that there are solutions and ways forward that can help you tremendously, uh, and especially some tools in meditation. Uh, like with sacred acoustics that can help you get to a much more centered and, and uh, harmonious place in your own soul journey. Amazing. Um, Noah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, And then again, I mean, before my dogs are going crazy, but I think, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I like talking about and being open with my anxiety and my depression. So I think the topic of suicide is also a big topic between me and my fans and, and just something that we, you know, I like to speak up about, please, if you're listening and you, and you feel, you know, as if you don't have someone to talk to that you do, you, there, there, you've got to find at least that one person that you can go to and start the conversation, you know, whether, um, who that is that you choose, uh, you are, you are going to get, the help that you need. And, and, and there isn't really a time where you should give up because you're gonna, you're gonna get the help that you need, even though it feels impossible. Cause I've been there and it felt impossible, but it's not impossible. And, um, if somebody's coming to you and trying to start the conversation, please listen, because it's really hard to start the conversation. Um, so if somebody comes to you, please just, you know, a pair of ears that listen to you is something that is extremely healing as well as just somebody who can sit there and listen to you and and genuinely cares. So um, thank you for touching on that topic before we end. That's very important that you bring that up and emphasize that. In fact, I saw a study just the other day that said uh, there was a week in June where something like 11% of Americans uh, considered actively considered suicide. You know, that's a very high number. It's like three times what the number was a year earlier that same week. And, you know, th- there's no question the COVID pandemic and the economic collapse uh, is creating uh, challenges around the world. But uh, uh, we can all gain strength through this if we work together. And I absolutely agree with you. Uh, please reach out uh, if you're feeling suicidal, uh, feeling uh, depressed over all this. Uh, there are resources out there. and. Uh, we're all in this together. So absolutely. Together. It was, it was amazing having you on in my fields. Thank you so much. Well, Lou and Noah, thank you so much for having me. It's great talking with you. And uh, I appreciate this opportunity and getting it out to your audience. So thank you very much. So much. Thank you. All right. Take care. Take care. Right, you too. Yep, guys. Bye. Peace. Bye-bye. Bye, Lou. Bye-bye.